Welcome. You're listening to Janesville Mobilizing for Changes Together for Change podcast. Your source for local substance abuse prevention matters in Janesville and Rock County. Here's your host, Aaron Davis. Good morning and thank you for joining us today. This is Aaron Davis, your host for Together for Change. Today I'd like to welcome Sandy Johnson and Courtney Carnock from CASA of Rock County, which stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates. Thank you both for joining us. So today I want to go over with you the impact that COVID has had on your agency and your clients and how CASA has adapted to meet the needs of the people you serve. So can you start by telling us about CASA, the locations, and the services that you offer? Sure. Well, um, CASA is an acronym, and it stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates. And we are located at the um, Janesville Courthouse, and we serve children um, throughout the entire county of, of Rock County um, who are, find themselves in the child welfare system. And what we do or our mission is to recruit, train, and support community volunteers who will advocate for the best interests and the needs of the kids in the child welfare system. So essentially, we recruit volunteers, just community volunteers, everyday people, and we train them, and we support them, and we teach them how to become an advocate for a child in the child welfare system. And ultimately, the advocate will then report back to the court and to the judge who is presiding over the case and let the judge know what the child needs and what the advocate feels are in the best interests of the child in order for them to achieve a safe, permanent home and to make sure that they're okay while they're in the child welfare system. That sounds like a volunteer service that has a lot of responsibility and for which you would need a lot of trust in your volunteers. Absolutely. Yes. We, do, um, we do rigorous background checks. And it is a rigorous commitment. We typically ask for at least one to two years commitment from our volunteers, and we do offer a high level of support. Um, and it's a pretty intense training program as well. So we really try to vet them and um, and really train them to to know what they're what they're getting into. So, how many youth do each volunteer have on their caseload at any given time? So that's really kind of the, you know, the beauty of what we do. And that is that, you know, the child welfare system is very overburdened. Um, not only do the caseworkers have <clears throat> heavy caseloads, also all of the attorneys that represent the children have high caseloads. So one of the things that we do is our volunteer advocates only serve one sibling group um, at a time. And that means that they can really devote the time to get to know the children and get to know what their needs are. And also, be the child, very frequently, we ask our volunteers to try to visit with their kiddos um, weekly because you can't advocate for the needs of a child unless you really know that child. So our volunteer advocates end up really getting to know the child and then one of the results of that is that they also become a mentor to this child. And many of our advocates will stay in touch with these children and their families even after the case closes because they develop that deep personal uh, relationship with the child. 
and they end up having a long-term relationship with them. And that's what really sets us apart, you know, having that ability to build that type of relationship with, um, you know, these really vulnerable children. And do the volunteers usually build a strong relationship with the parents as well, or most of the children that the volunteers are working with in foster families? Um, oftentimes, they, they continue to have a relationship with the parents as well. It's typically the goal is reunification with mom and dad, and it's, it's a really beautiful situation when our volunteers are also able to establish that rapport and that connection as well to be a support for the whole family. Because, you know, a, a healthy, strong family, a safe and stable family is really, you know, the long-term um, best outcome for these kiddos. And so it's really great and, and very common that our volunteers will also be supports for mom and dad as well. So how many volunteers do you have and how many are currently in this COVID climate active? Um, we currently have 52 volunteer advocates who are serving um, children in the child welfare system. And last year we were able to serve um, 150 children. Unfortunately, that's only 58% of the children that are in the child welfare system. So ultimately, our goal is to be able to recruit more volunteers so that every child who's in the child welfare system will have an advocate by their side, ensuring that their needs are being met. These children are the most vulnerable children in our community. And, you know, they've already gone through a lot of trauma by being removed from their homes. And, you know, the number one reason why children find themselves in the child welfare system in Rock County is substance abuse. And so we, um, we are always, you know, thinking about the fact that in our community, we need to make sure that these, these kiddos, you know, end up having the, the best future that we can possibly have for them. They've already faced so many struggles, and this is just one piece of ensuring that, you know, they're able to get the services they need so that they can heal from the trauma they've already endured. Trauma is a very important indicator of future youth substance use. That's something that we um, look at very closely in the field of youth substance use prevention. Um, so yes, it's definitely always at the top of our minds. Um, so now I want to sort of shift gears and talk about how COVID has interrupted the work that you're doing. Um, what are you doing differently? What can't you do at all? How have your direct services been disrupted? Well, I would say, like most of the world right now, and, and the nation, the country, the county, everywhere, uh, there's definitely been a huge disruption in our program's ability to um, do what we set out to do, of having to retool our approach, as everyone has had to do, is trying to go into the virtual realm. Um, and, and we've had to take everything, at least for the first few months, through Zoom visits, through telephone visits, trying to get creative in how we're engaging with the children and with the families when it wasn't safe to have face-to-face -face interactions and face-to-face -face contact. Um, some of the disruptions also, I mean, even just within staff, you know, our, our program, everyone's working from home. Um, and it's interesting because we do work very closely with the child welfare, um, with CPS, so with 
the case workers and CPS workers, um, and not being able to have those regular meetings, um, face-to-face, running into people live in person, even court. Uh, it, it was a very interesting thing that court is a huge part of our job. You know, we're court-appointed special advocates, and, and we advocate for children in the courtroom. And court has switched to being online, being virtual, Zoom court hearings. And that, too, has disrupted kind of how the flow of the child welfare system has worked. Um, a lot of cases where, um, let's say, the, the children have been lingering in care for a while and they need to reach permanency and need perhaps what we call a TPR, termination of parental rights, which is the, you know, the last final, um, you know, sad outcome if, if mom and dad are just unable to, to be protective parents and, and, and have permanency with reunification. And even those have been delayed. Um, and, and pushed off because there's no end in sight into when people can get back into the courtroom for trials and hearings. And so that's just one example. But in terms of our service delivery, um, really trying to find creative ways to keep our volunteers engaged, um, you know, it, it can be difficult to establish a relationship and a rapport with young children. Um, how do you meet with a baby via Zoom. <laughs> just right. that's not, not exactly the most um, uh, effective way to establish a, a relationship. But I mean, we have had some really, um, really good connections have have worked out with certain volunteers and certain age groups of children. But fortunately, with some of the easing of the restrictions um, and due to the summer months and everything, we have been able to slowly. Uh, kind of allow more face-to-face interactions with the with the families and with the kiddos using masks, socially distancing outdoors, um, and and that's been kind of um, a positive is is moving forward, getting getting back into these face-to-face visits. But we still have a large contingent of our volunteer base who are older adults. They're retired. They might have some underlying health conditions. Um, not to mention some of our families, too, have their own underlying health conditions or might be the vulnerable populations that we really need to be cautious and careful with. So it's been, it's definitely been a struggle, but it's, you know, basically been a struggle across the board in, in all areas. So we're all doing the best we can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when you talked about going to court and trying to do court virtually, trying to do sessions virtually, one of the concerns that I had immediately was what if your client doesn't have access to internet services or any type of virtual equipment, what do you do then? I mean, it's not necessarily their fault that they can't see their court-appointed special advocate. However, that is still the result. They can't. They're in, would that be in contempt? Um, and if that's the case, then how can they be held accountable for something they can't control? The the courts really have become a little bit more lenient on that right now, understanding that. And interestingly, you know, there's been talk at the courthouse about kind of keeping the Zoom format because a lot of the courtrooms have seen a better result in people appearing for their hearings because they don't have to drive all the way into the courthouse. So there actually has maybe been a positive thing that, you know, people won't necessarily have to actually appear in person. 
that they could appear in person or they could appear via Zoom and then they wouldn't have to take off work. Um, so, so there can be actually might be a positive that comes out of this for that. And I agree with Sandy. That is what we've seen is, um, you know, like she said, they don't have to drive into the courthouse, perhaps won't have to take off of work um, if they are working uh, because they can fit it into the schedule a little bit better. And we and there's enough notice for a hearing. Usually they get at least a month's notice. And the caseworkers are also really good about, um, you know, the CPS ongoing workers are, are really good about supporting their clients as well and, and helping them problem solve and troubleshoot how they can get access to a smartphone or to a computer or, or internet um, prior to court. So they, they can plan for it and arrange for it. And so it really hasn't been um, a huge issue with access to um, the technology needed for it. So it sounds like, um, although it was inadvertent, there might see, be some positive changes to the uh, justice system in this way. And, you know, while you were speaking about not having to go into the courthouse, I was thinking about the stigma of having to walk into the courthouse for a hearing about your child's welfare. And, you know, how at some times there might be people who just don't show because they can't face that. Whereas on a phone or a tablet, it might be a little bit easier to face. So, yeah, I think that's a great point. I think that's true. Definitely um, less intimidating and, and less stigma for sure. That's great. So are there any specific needs or services that have really been identified as being greater or more prominent now that COVID has disrupted life as we know it? Well, I think that one of our biggest fears is is the fact that there, you know, throughout the whole um, the shutdown and all that, you know, there really were no eyes on the most vulnerable children in our community. And even with um, children going back to school, and now that is, you know, really going to be questionable whether or not they're back in school, you know, you have less eyes on all of these children. And so you're also dealing with all of the stress of the situation, um, people being, you know, locked up and cooped up and just the stress of the whole, you know, COVID pandemic itself that, you know, puts a strain on people's mental health. And so we're very concerned that, you know, once things start opening up and children are out in the community more and mandated reporters of abuse or child abuse or neglect um, are in contact with these children, that we're going to see a significant surge of children that enter the child welfare system. Do you anticipate seeing that as early as like the first or second week of school? Um, it would just be, I would anticipate that the youth that are in the more vulnerable situations will probably return to school um, simply because the parents don't have childcare or they might not have that all day access to internet. So I would expect to see them back in school. And then you might see those cases, a flurry of them all at once. Had some of the, the workers out at the county who actually investigate um, um, reports of abuse and neglect. And in the last month already, since we've kind of started opening up again, they've seen a significant surge of reports that come into um, the Human Services Department um, for abuse or neglect for is, a child. Is that a surge compared to the last four months since we've been dealing with COVID or a surge even compared to last year at the same time? Um, I would say just a surge 
since the shutdown with COVID in March. I believe um, as of June, we had only had um, 30 new cases that had got worked through the court system, which typically that's, that's a very low number. So we did see a definite decline in the number of children um, that the court took jurisdiction over um, because of abuse or neglect. Okay. Well, thank you both. We are going to take a, a short break. We're going to learn about the social host ordinance, and then we will be back. Underage drinking is against the law. Hello, this is Rock County Sheriff Troy Knutson. Under Wisconsin state law, it is illegal for adults to provide a location for underage drinking parties, even in their own home. The first violation will cost you more than $450. Don't worry about being the popular parent. Be the responsible one. Those who host lose the most. This message brought to you by the Rock County Prevention Network. All right, well, welcome back. Just before our break, we were discussing how CASA has adapted to fit the current situation. So now I'd like to talk about whether further adaptations are coming. Do you foresee any additional changes to the services you offer and how you offer them? I think we're going to continue down the trajectory that we've um, already started in terms of really trying to manage virtually as much as possible um, with meetings, team meetings. That's, a, that's another big one is, you know, part of CASA's responsibility is to connect and engage with um, not only the child and their families, but also their teachers, their counselors, their psychiatrists or, or psychologists, um, any, any service provider that's supporting the child or their family. And, um, you know, a lot of these meetings and face-to-face interactions have been disrupted as well for the kids and their families. Um, So hopefully moving forward, these things are going to open back up and we can continue um, to have these conversations and meet with the professionals um, more virtually via Zoom meetings. And back to kind of how we said it with court, we're actually finding that that makes connecting a little bit easier than in-person face-to-face visits and meetings because it's way more convenient for the professionals to get together. So that's another positive adaptation that I've seen um, due to COVID is the convenience of of team meetings and meetings from home. Um, So that's something that we're kind of adapting as we go. But I am fearful of the wintertime coming um, because right now with our face-to-face visits, primarily being encouraged to occur outdoors and with social distancing and and with masks and all the safety precautions. Once winter in Wisconsin hits, um, I think that's going to really impact our ability to have those live in-person visits again. And we may have to go back to how things were in March um, before we knew much about um, safe ways to to engage with people in public. so I do see that that's going to be impacted again. And, you know, same with the kids in school. Right now, like you said, some kids may be able to attend uh, physically in school, but there's still that reluctance and that hesitation in our heads of, is it going to end up getting shut down again? Right. Um, and so the unknowns, I think, is really hard for everybody. Um, not being able to anticipate what's coming. Um, or we can anticipate it, but we but it's still unknown, and we don't really know how to... Um, change course and so I think everybody's just really kind of having to work on their flexibility and adaptability to um, this ever-evolving situation that nobody's you know we've never experienced before so you know again just 
working virtually and, and getting comfortable with technology um, to replace more of these live physical interactions. And like I said, it continues to be a struggle with the younger children. Um, and that is my fear because um, a lot of our kids are under the age of five and that that really does present a problem. So what do you see as future expansion of services or expansion of needs knowing the current public health crisis? For the agency, you know, one of our concerns is, um, you know, future volunteerism declining. And we rely on volunteers that, you know, the whole, the whole um, central theme of our program is that we use community volunteers to advocate for these children. And we're very worried that there'll be a decline in people's ability to volunteer um, or their willingness to volunteer because of the pandemic. And, you know, we're a nonprofit organization and most of our money, you know, comes from, from receiving grants. Um, but it also comes from, you know, doing fundraising events. And as a result of COVID, we haven't been able to um, have any fundraising events. Um, so that's, you know, affecting our ability to raise the funds that are desperately needed to keep our program going, as well as to increase capacity and grow our program so that we one day can serve every child in the child welfare system. Funding as well as volunteerism is a concern. Sandy, can you talk a little bit about what the funding is used for, for your program? Yeah, so our funding um, is used, obviously, to hire staff. So all of our, we currently have five full-time employees and one part-time employee. And, you know, we work with children in the child welfare system who have experienced trauma. And we also work with the legal system. And so there's, like Courtney said, a lot of training that goes into training our advocates to be able to do what they do. So we have to hire staff that are competent um, and able to do that. So our funding goes to support the staff and eventually grow the staff so that we can support more volunteer advocates. And do you ever use funding to provide basic needs or services or direct assistance to the clients that you're working with? Um, Or is it really that uh, support-based I want to use the word case management, although I feel like it's your staff that provides the case management and the volunteers that provides the support uh, to the families directly. Um, but are there any direct services? Advocacy is really the only direct service that you know we solely provide, and that's a free service for any child in the child welfare system. Um, we do have some supportive businesses in the community that we're incredibly grateful for who do fundraisers for us so that we can raise funds so that throughout the year we have some some money available to be able to help kiddos you know when they go back to school purchase school items for them or purchase you know clothing and things that they might need helping um, in order to help out the family if when the child is reunified with the parents so we have a limited amount of funding available for that, but that really is not our primary um, our primary duty. Our primary duty is to provide advocacy and mentorship to the children in the child welfare system. 
And I want to say that this is really the heart of prevention. Having one supportive adult in a child's life is their greatest protective factor. So the fact that there is an agency out there that recognizes this and provides this advocacy is incredibly important for our community. So um, if somebody found themselves to be in need of CASA services, how are they routed into your care? Well, they're appointed by the court. So people in um, who are or children in the child welfare system uh, are court appointed by the judge, and it, it's currently Judge Hawkinson. And um, when they have been um, involved in a CHIP proceeding or have been found in need of protection and services by the county, he will appoint um, CASA to advocate for them. So it is a court-ordered service. Um, however, you know, due to our limited number of volunteers, as Sandy pointed out, we are only um, serving 58% of the children in the child welfare system in Rock County at this time. So um, receiving a volunteer, you know, that that's why we want to increase our volunteer base because we would like to be able to serve more children, but it does have to be um, court appointed. It is a court ordered um, program. So how does that work? If it's court, court appointed, let's say that Judge Hawkinson hears five cases in a day, he appoints them all to CASA, and CASA only has the capacity to take two. What happens to those other three cases? We do maintain a wait list. Um, unfortunately, that so we do uh, monitor the kiddos on our waiting list and sit in on their hearings and, and continue to update our database and, and stay um, kind of abreast of what's going on in their cases. However, we don't have the capacity or the resources for direct advocacy for all of these cases. So as, as they're, um, you know, appointed or a cost is appointed to these cases, um, we just, you know, keep them, we just try to keep a watchful eye until we have a volunteer available to assign to the case. Currently we have um, 92 children who are on our waiting list um, that we need a volunteer advocate um, to serve for them. 92, that breaks my heart. Ours too. So finally, what would you like listeners to take away? I personally um, would love for listeners to take away that CASA is still going strong despite the pandemic, and it's probably more necessary and more needed at this time with kids not having access to um, services and teachers and all the professionals who are usually a support in their lives. And we are in dire need, as you heard, of more volunteers. And we continue, we've adapted our training, so it's online, which also makes it more convenient for a lot of people. We are in dire need of new volunteers um, and more volunteers so that we can meet the needs of these children and so that we can be that one stable adult to help um, support them during this time. So that that would be my um takeaway piece is we need volunteers and our work is not done and if anything it's more crucial and more critical at this time. Courtney what would you say the time commitment for a volunteer would be? Um, it, it, it varies versus, um, via where the case is however we typically ask our volunteers to devote 8 to 12 hours a month um, you know a minimum we would say a minimum of an hour a week an hour or two a week as Sandy pointed out, we like to encourage weekly visits. Um, and then there's also court report writing. We do have an ongoing training commitment. So 
Um, our in-service train or pre-service volunteer training itself is 35 hours, Sandy, is that correct? Correct. Yes. So it, it's a pretty intensive um, pre-service training before becoming a volunteer. Um, and then, you know, about 8 to 12 hours a month um, to continue that. And if somebody wanted to volunteer, how could they contact you? They can go to our website, which is castoutrockcounty.org. And on the website, they can they can um, learn more about what it means and what it in, what being a volunteer advocate all entails. And then there's actually an application form right on our website that they can fill out um, if they feel that this is something they would like to do and feel a calling to really help a child who um, really needs to have a stable adult by their side. Wonderful. Do you have anything else you'd like listeners to take away today? Oh, we're just really grateful that you gave us the opportunity to share with you a little bit more about what CASA does and what our volunteer advocates do. And, you know, just reminding everybody it takes a village and um, we need to do everything that we can for the children in our community who need, need it the most. All right. Well, thank you both for joining us today for Together for Change. Please stay tuned for our next episode and have a great day.